Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. with an Ethereum podcast. I'm here today with Jack Spallone from Ujo Music and Consensus. Uh, as I am an, a member of Consensus, you can think of this podcast as being sponsored by Consensus, so thank you. But this also serves as a disclaimer that uh, my interests are, in fact, aligned with Consensus and its projects. So, Jack, thanks for being on the program today. I guess let's start by... With the bio, the, the standard podcast beginning, uh, tell us tell us about you and, and how you came to be working at Ujo. Yeah, thanks, Evan. Uh, happy to be on today. My first interaction with Ujo, I was doing a thesis study. I was still an undergrad. It was my senior thesis, and I started it. It was it carried over from an independent study I did in the fall, and then my thesis was done in the spring. And in the fall, uh, the topic of my study was what. Uh, blockchain could do for the music industry by the time that I got to my thesis, which was supposed to be on the same topic, it went what blockchain companies are doing with music. And Ujo is actually one of the five that I rated. Prior to that, I got into music, working in music professionally. While I was an undergrad as a freshman, I created a website and I was a blogger, a local blogger, created a calendar of events for shows because I found it really hard to find shows you know, from promoters on Facebook or where have you. And I just created basically a, a syndicated place that showed every uh, concert in the city. That led to me getting into talent buying because I began to understand that business uh, and its separation from the actual venues themselves. And then that led into management. And those three things, after doing them, I, I really kind of not, did not want to work in the music industry at all. I, I longed for a more <laughs> professional environment. So I, I totally left. And it wasn't until I was abroad in 2013 that I read more about like stock markets of Bitcoin for uh, advancing artists' albums, and I became interested in potentially working in music again. Then Ethereum came around, and then people started talking about the actual data hygiene issues within music and uh, the complexity of uh, the increasing royalty payments with the proliferation of Apple Music as opposed to digital downloads of Spotify with uh, iTunes, and then obviously Spotify. So a lot of actual music revenue is generated from streams now and not actual proper sales. So it was this big data issue of actually deciphering all this, all this information and then paying out to over 100 different, 180 different currencies of respective rights holders uh, from these DSPs. It became very complicating and the actual administrative overhead clearly impossible. And, you know, there, therein entered Ethereum as this potential solution. At the same time, this is when I had kicked off researching it at school. And that's when Ujo did their prototype with Imogen Heap in the fall of 2015. And then I graduated in 2016. I worked in ad tech, actually, for a year for the dark side. Simultaneously, was working with a developer on an open source project, structuring metadata and making it compatible with IPDB uh, so that we could 
have actual music metadata uh, content addressable. We, I, I had known Jesse Grushak of Ujo, and it before long it just made sense that we joined forces. You know, take Ujo, um, you know, into the next few years. So yeah, that's kind of the short story of how I got here. Not necessarily chronological, but yeah. So now I've been here for a little over six months. Uh, you said you got into into management. So I guess uh, tell me a little bit about that. I mean, it makes sense that if you were like the go-to place for, for, for shows in, in your college town. Where were you, by the way? Uh, so, yeah, I was in Orlando. So this is actually interesting. And the, the, and this could get into why I never wanted to work in music. But, yeah, well, um, the music as, industry is a, is a hard way to make an easy living. I mean, like they say about poker. Like, <laughs> yeah, right? But, like, uh, I don't know why, but the people that are attracted to the music industry, some, like, you know, no one really has great things to say about the music business. But the people that work in it cannot work in any other industry for some reason. It's like, and I, and I sort of feel that way now. Um, and I think I've bridged the best of both worlds by working at Consensus for Ujo, but working in music. So, yeah, I, I was a talent buyer. And what I had done with the blog, um, aggregating shows, attracted the attention of uh, local talent buyers who at the time, I was 17 years old. I didn't understand the difference between like a venue actually booking a, an artist like I thought it worked, which is still true in some cases, or it was the actual promoter or a talent buyer. So I found out really quickly once I started getting a lot of attention on my website that the promoters were like, kind of like, okay, this kind of this is doing our job for us. We don't need to print out flyers anymore. We don't need to have street teams. Everyone just goes to this website and checks out where the, the concerts are locally. So then the actual promoters started reaching out to me and asked me if they could pay for me to put their events at the top of the page. And I learned like, okay, this is actually potentially a business despite, you know, it being in, in chronological order. So I did that for a little bit, but then I ended up like not wanting to do it anymore. I, I was doing it for different reasons that I initially started and I sold the website, but then I joined a, a promoter themselves a couple months later after I got back from summer vacation and got back to school to do their digital work and create a website for them and, and increase their social presence and help sell shows digitally to reduce their actual on the ground costs. We were able to do this really successfully and create a strong brand around what we were and this is where it got interesting because the way it works is you have a talent buyer who's typically either the promoter uh, like owns the promotion company on the ground there and, and they do the talent buying and they have like a street team um, or they're with a venue. But they have agent relationships across different agencies to book artists and the agent talent buyer relationships work by like, hey, you know, can you book this artist for five thousand dollars and and we'll get you this bigger artist for you know, 20% less than, you know, their market rate against the other tour dates. Right. So you're constantly doing events. Like you have a couple nights at a couple of venues a week to fill as a talent buyer. You have agents who have artists whose tours they need to fill. Um, so you're constantly making compromises. We were able to make the brand of our promotion company, Evolve Group in Orlando, big enough so that we could book the smaller artists. But our weekly events had such a strong brand presence that irrespective of the artists we placed, they would sell out. So we would actually have higher margins on the lower cost, uh, less popular artists than the higher higher caliber artists that could draw more crowds and sell out the, the venues, which is interesting to us. And someone noticed me doing that. He was actually a DJ at the time, and I used to book him to open shows. He wanted to manage this artist and fly him over from Australia. It was like kind of a crazy idea, but he was also a blogger with 
more national and global blogs, uh, particularly in the EDM scene, is important to note. And this is back in the time when EDM was really, really booming. He so he paid like twelve thousand dollars for this kid to have a visa to come over in America and perform live events. And then he just stayed with him in his bedroom. We would schedule releases and we were able to get on all of these different blogs that were tracked by Hype Machine, which is like a great discovery tool for music. Are you familiar with it? No, I'm not. I'm pretty finger off the pulse of the music scene. I'm like, <laughs> a teenager. <laughs> yeah, so we were able to get on Hype Machine via all these blogs. And by doing that, it just immediately correlated to SoundCloud followers, Facebook followers, and agents reaching out to us wanting to represent our artists. So we ended up getting our artist Tom signed to an agent, and then that went really well. We were able to get him bookings and tours, but basically we had a process to grow an artist that you know had a good enough sound almost rather easily. And then we did this again with another artist, um, and six months later that artist was signed to Sony. So at right around that time, um, that was not the direction I wanted to take it. Uh, I stepped away and that's when it got into me just kind of delving back into technology, focusing on how I, how I could make a living outside of college as an entrepreneur. I was obviously as obsessed with cryptocurrency, but, but the future of it was largely uncertain at the time, uh, at least for me. And then it kind of just was like nailed down once I put music back together with it. You know, the idea of running like dividend markets and future markets against releases for artists was so exciting to me. And yeah, so then, you know, I obviously focused on it with my studies and, and then the rest got me here. Tell me about basically getting from the point of like the image and heap release with Thucho and then I guess you joined uh, six months ago to where you are at now. Yeah, so since I joined uh, in May, let me just speak to it from, I guess, my external perspective, because I was involved with Ujo and what they were doing. I met Jesse Grushak of Ujo in June of 2016. Yeah, June of 2016 at the Open Music Initiative uh, kickoff event. The Open Music Initiative is a foundation started by Berkeley School of Music with sponsors like Intel um, and partners like MIT. Basically, they just wanted to bring together as many different organizations as possible uh, that work in music and try and collectively understand how we could usher in a new, more equitable supply chain that maybe beyond uh, you know, the equity returns is at least efficient or more efficient than today. This was largely just a think tank, uh, not necessarily an actual technical project. This is when I met Jesse. And at the time, they had done the Imogen Heap release about seven months earlier. The, the project had kind of like simmered down and priorities were taken elsewhere within consensus. It was still very, very small at the time. And then when the OMI kicked off, it was really kind of, to me, it was clear that Ujo was, was going to be, was not going away. It was still going to be around and they were going to do something. It was not just a prototype with Imogen Heap. You know, they wanted to be a part of the conversation. The, the reality was uh, to do what we wanted to do, payments at the very bottom layer required us to go above and beyond not the irresponsibility, but the lack of diligence that has been committed in the past 20 years with music distribution. I, I, I've referenced data hygiene. There's so much information that goes within an actual audio file that is important uh, regarding the actual rights holders that doesn't exist in the actual MP3 itself. So structuring like, you know, a, a SQL database around that would be really easy. But obviously that's like a proprietary siloed, you know, data set. How do you actually structure these things uh, in a decentralized network 
so that you can onboard your information, but then make it programmatically accessible and licensable like via an API key um, or via like an interface and then paid for programmatically as you use it via like an API call of your own application or whatnot. Basically, how can we remove intermediaries, human intermediaries uh, to clear licenses in music? It seemed really simple, like, hey, come give us your catalogs, give in your license policies, and we can turn the thing on. In reality, it became, it was bigger than Ujo at the time. It was bigger than the OMI at the time, which was 140 different organizations, bigger than Ethereum at the time. It was how are we going to take the entire music industry to agree to usher in a new foundation to enable new, greater revenues in the future. We tried to do that and facilitate that dialogue collectively, both Ujo, what I was doing at Resonate, what I was doing with the open source project, what we were doing at the OMI for about six months before we realized we could do this for another 10 years and we might not make any more progress. Around, I would say, the turn of this past year, 2016 and 2017, it was clear that Ujo had taken on a different turn. They said, you know what? We're going to draw a line in the sand. We're going to recreate what we think really simplifies the supply chain for the music industry. We can work with unencumbered musicians and we can demonstrate how this can actually be done much more effectively and at a lower cost than how the the current industry operates. So then ever since then, it's just been building, building, building. And the idea is if we can actually demonstrate the traction we get there and prove the concept, then maybe we can retroactively just have the discussion of how we onboard the incumbent industry. How many artists are unencumbered, like in the way that you say? I mean... Some people have yeah, so, with record companies that will let them do things like that. Is that is that more the the case that they either have to be unsigned or just with a record company that is forward thinking? The answer is both. So there's plenty of un- un- unencumbered musicians. The thing about unencumbered musicians is not how many are there. It's how well do people like that music, which, you know, given the psychology of how music is, is put in front of us kind of persistently uh, for commercial interest. We typically don't like the unencumbered music because it's not it's not the sounds that we're familiar with hearing. Now, that's very general. That's not true at all in a global context with a global audience, because music, again, is like food. <laughs> There's so many different ways of looking at it and liking it and being passionate about it uh, because it is both com- com- commercial and cultural. There's enough of a cohort out there for us to actually take in those that that segment without having to worry about incorporating uh, label, uh, like paying off an advance, paying off an advance to a publisher, paying off a percentage to a performing rights society, um, and doing other different splits that don't actually go back to the creators, but go to say like a DSP themselves or a distributor. So by working with this group, we're able to flex our technology and continue to improve our technology, but we can simultaneously work with artists that are signed with a label, uh, a forward thinking label for that matter, and do some some demonstrations with that as well. So I guess for an example with that, uh, we did the RAC release in July. We released uh, a Grammy award-winning artist, uh, RAC's album uh, on July 14th. All we did was you know just enable payments in Ether. That's really all we did. But we wanted to do something, we hadn't done anything in a while that was public facing for consumers. And we really love RAC, so, and, and he loves Ethereum, so, it was kind of like a match made in heaven, given his label was also very keen to begin experimenting in this space because everyone's been talking about it in music for two years now. So what we do with that, this is this is cool. We rather than did the typical 70-30 split, which is what like 
a DSP would take. So Spotify will take 30% and 70% will go back to the rights holders. Sure. We did an 80-20 split, but we did an 80% payment to the label. We gave them a little bit more because they were so keen to work with us um, and be patient with our processes and, and our learning. Then we gave 20% to RAC as the DSP because that's kind of how we're picturing this new ecosystem where you, the creators actually have the they're enabled with the ability to host themselves, which is really already possible with something like SoundCloud. We're extending that further and enabling payments and potentially new cool features too. But yeah, more generally, there are different uh, licensing agreements that we can play with and kind of recreate for our needs to do one-off projects. However, our main focus really is on building an underlying infrastructure that is really hard to correspond with the technical mandates of a performing rights society, of a DSP today, and how labels want to get paid. We're talking about wire transfers and data sent over an FTP. You know, so we can do what we want to do as a DSP and say serve music and license it from a from a major catalog holder. But if they want fiat at the end of the day and they want the actual consumption data sent over an FTP uh, in a spreadsheet, you know, what's the point of doing it our way anyway? That's kind of the question. Right, you know, you still have these in and out bottlenecks. Assume I I was a musician and I guess I go on YouTube or SoundCloud or whatever. Uh, I'm gonna assume that like there are no BMI ASCAP uh, like automatic licensing that I get by being on SoundCloud or anything like that. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Yeah, uh, you can go and upload anything, and you're not protected. So I build an audience for myself on SoundCloud and. Uh, then I, it's like a sizable audience that I can monetize. Like I have, you know, in, in Kevin Kelly parlance, like a thousand true fans, uh, that will pay, you know, $20 each for my collection of, of songs. I saw that, you know, Ujo has released an album, uh, an alpha. I could go sign up on Ujo and then uh, essentially I could get my, like the payment in, in ether. Yeah. So right now, uh, we will be using ether for the, the foreseen future. It's a, it's a one-way medium of exchange, so there's really no reason in tokenizing that um, if, if that was... Yeah, I'm just um, thinking, of, I mean, this is essentially, like, the, the vision right now is to let artists, like, independent artists uh, do this, right? And that, and that that's, like, yeah, so, to find people that do have audiences but aren't... Yeah, yeah. no, one, one thing I do have to disclose to artists that are interested, it's like, yeah, BYOD, bring your own demand. Like, we don't, we don't have users, we don't have fans... It's like Bandcamp. So Bandcamp is perfect for this. You can amass a big following on SoundCloud. It is social. It does have that component to it. Uh, but the problem is, like, how do you tell those people to go buy your album? You know, you can't. You can't email them. You could, like, change your description and say, hey, go to Bandcamp and buy my album. But you can't really communicate with them, except if you wanted to DM all of them, you could do that. Yeah, there's there's services today that actually mimic exactly what we're doing at the interface level, uh, with the exception of what you're paying with. This isn't really where we're stopping. Um, it's really just giving us the opportunity to nail down our core infrastructure layers. Is the goal more to like sign up a bunch of, of artists and have them transacting using Ujo? Or is it to sign a few at, or to have a few using it and, and use that as a way to build out other things? So the go-to-market's interesting because this is the music industry, right? Like I, I can't create an application that only has a little bit of music and expect a lot of people to come. Uh, on, on the contrary, I can't expect an app that 
has very little listeners uh, and a lot of artists to come and register their work. How you actually position this in a way that can grow organically um, on those two sides is really the question here, especially when, as far as the consumer migration patterns go, everyone is sort of consolidated under Spotify um, over the past year, past few years, and continues to do so in a way that would be hard to compete with, at least for the next few years, uh, before you know they're they're ready to exit for whatever reason. Spotify so, has has continued to gain market share. Yes. Oh, that's yes. interesting. I didn't realize that. So they've beaten Apple Music and Pandora and. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good yes, but I mean the actual consumers are not the end thing here. I think that's important to note too. There's a future we want to see. I think first and foremost, it's just hard to like get there because we need to amass some sort of market share to signal what we've created to incentivize more artists to register in a way that enables this. But it's this B2B programmatic licensing marketplace with no intermediaries. We're in a world today where uh, you require like a publisher, a label or someone in the middle who has a human network to broker license deals for you. If everyone in the world that wants to license music knew what they wanted to license, as far as the musician goes, like which which actual artists or music group they want to license, they could go to them and license it directly from them in a programmatic fashion. It doesn't require them to clear that with them, uh, you know, either verbally or, or however, manually. They can do it, as I mentioned, in a way that can just be automated based on a rate that was already defined based on the license type that they want to use it for. Whether that's like a sync license in a video, a derivative work if they want to chop it up and, and mix it with something else, a download, a stream, you know, what have you. I thought that you, there were standard terms that like BMI ASCAP where they could just go in and like if you're registered with them, then you just use use your work. Is that the difference between performance rights and the other? So <laughs> yeah, there's, the mechan- there's, there's performance and mechanical. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so that maybe this is important context. If you think about like the way a song has been created, especially with like rock and roll or you know, like you know manufactured music over the past uh, more than this about a century um, in America, particularly starting in America, you have studios which are run by labels, but then you also have songwriters which are represented by publishers. The songwriters write the songs, but they're not necessarily the people singing; they're not necessarily the people performing it. So it's really this this huge you know band of people that have to come together. And on the one hand, you have the songwriter, which is a different piece of copyright than the actual recording itself. So the songwriter owns the composition, and then the the recording, the recording side, the R with the circle around it, um, is typically owned by the label, who would typically provide the studio. Now the actual you know business practices of the past have kind of determined this licensing structure of the future, this copyright structure that we exist. That we have today, mechanicals themselves are what is owed out for the, the composition of the song, whereas uh, the performance rights are owed out to the performers of the song, the people who uh, you know did the recording. So there's those two sides, and they're typically just 50-50, depending on whatever the license rate is for a given work. Mechanical, the idea of a mechanical is so archaic, it comes from a paper piano roll. Hmm. Today, the performance is typically done. I mean, there, there have been top 40 Billboard songs that were recorded, you know, maybe mastered in a studio after the fact. Some weren't. No, in fact, some were not. Some were just done on a computer um, with digital instrument tools written as they were recorded in an interface. And, and so this songwriting, song recording process has kind of morphed into this new thing. And there's a large portion of music today, recorded music today, 
where the musicians, the creators themselves don't even know the difference between the composition and the recording side of copyright when it comes to a music, a piece of music. So that also is sort of like a market segment that we want to go after, or, or really the market segment we want to go after because it's the lowest hanging fruit and it makes the most sense that they can just upload their music and put it into a format that you know they're protected, they can license it and they get paid for it too. And they know they're going to get paid for it. So, so that's the, basically the next thing that you will build technically, right? Is a, a licensing backend for the, the sign up uh, as an unencumbered artist? Yeah, exactly. So, right. Um, so the way it went is, um, you know, Ujo wants to create um, this new licensing marketplace because we know, we, we know like what we need to do technically to get, to get music into a position where all of the current problems that the supply chain faces today are effectively solved and new revenue opportunities are generated at the same time. But actually getting people to adopt this is the question. That's the real problem here. It's a very stubborn business. So what we did was we created the portal, which is basically just the very bare bones, like go in, register yourself, attach a wallet address to you as a person, register your music group, and then register a release for that music group. And in the future, we're going to immediately add uh, splits between members. Right now, we can only support like one singer songwriter per one song singer song or sorry songwriter performer who like you know holistically owns the track. But in the future, we're going to enable get like a split sheet so that you can go in and define different people in the music group and what they're owed on a given single or a given release, uh, whether it be an EP or a full album. But yeah, the idea is we want to work on the actual like. API library so that all of this catalog that is being registered with us can be licensed by any application, whether they're like a video application or, you know, a music streaming service or like, you know, anything else and beyond that we can't even imagine today. Those are the new revenue opportunities we want to generate for the music industry that are not being facilitated today because we have these gatekeepers on the major catalogs that won't consider licensing anything to you unless you want to pay them a lot of money because they can, they have the leverage to demand that, which we think is problematic. If I wanted to license a song from a major catalog from a Sony artist, you know, I might be able to get a hold of their publisher, but I would need to get the rights to that. And then I would need to get the rights to, from the master. And I just want to put it in a video and show, you know, 50, 50 people at my school. So because it's in an educational context, uh, my teacher demands the copyright or that I have a license for it, but I can't get access because neither the label or the publisher will consider anything under $10,000. I'm willing to pay, I'd pay 50 bucks because I think this song is really going to make my video and I would love to do it, but they're just not going to do it because they won't even reply to my email. These are the new revenue opportunities that we speak of, but it doesn't make sense to have people register their music when no application is on the other end licensing it. it there's no musician that I know that would want to take part in that unless we incentivize them somehow, which is certainly possible, but not something we, we thought we should do because we just wanted to build this actually and, and make sure that you know we could get it down. So we created a store. We created a, we, we created a consumer-facing side so that there was you know, a, a closed loop on why you're uploading your music, why you're registering yourself. But as we created just to kind of demonstrate one license opportunity, we realized, you know what, maybe we should just make that like the stock option for musicians. All these other applications can license your work and they will pay fees on top of whatever license rate you provide. But this can be your home. You can have an Ujo created, Ujo hosted site for yourself, for your releases, We'll never get in between you and your fans and charge any fee. 
right now we do have the alpha. Basically, you go and register yourself in a way that would, you know, be in a position to uh, be licensed in the future in, in a way that's compatible with that. But you do also have this store that you can, you know, share a link with your friend. Like, hey, go check out this release and tip me an ETH or buy the buy the release if you want. Is the is the alpha available today? Can anybody go sign up? No, not anyone. It's private. So by alpha, uh, <laughs> we're not even in beta. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do our alpha now um, over the next month, and then we're gonna do our beta when we're on mainnet, which will probably be public and open to anyone who wants to sign up. I hope. And then hopefully we can go public sometime uh, by the end of the first half of this next year. But yeah, we have a working product today. You can check out like the RAC store. Basically what, what our portal does is creates those for an artist that goes and registers themselves. We've been testing it internally. I'm not sure actually, you might've seen the email about it to test it out yourself. But yeah, uh, yeah, signed it's, up. Yeah. yeah it's available. Um, you can use your MetaMask to go in and register yourself. It's really exciting to see it come to life. It's been, uh, it's been a really long time coming. Not just from Ujo, but just like you know, the industry talking about this. It's it, we're in a we're in a position where we've created something very simple, but you know, to artists, it's it's could be potentially a big impact. You said about a month until an artist can sign up. Is that right? Yeah. So right now we are just kind of like dog fooding it internally, as you know, and we're going to be doing it with a couple segments of people that are like close friends um, over the next few weeks to just get their feedback, mostly on like UX stuff. And then in the next year, we're going to have all of our, we'll have our smart contracts audited, uh, hopefully by the end of January. That's what we're shooting for. Um, and then have our beta launched sometime January, February, which will be open, but still just as a beta, it's like, you know, it's subject to, you know, not be the most friendly thing you're using. And then from there, I think, uh, you know, how well our attraction goes, the artist side, we will then begin to prioritize creating out the programmatic uh, marketplace and kind of extending that as a portion of our brand. For the artists that are listening that can that can be able to sign up uh, in, in a few months, I guess, what are, are there any other possible additional revenue options that you see Ujo and Ethereum enabling? Yeah, so this is where it's really exciting, kind of something we stumbled upon when we did the REC release. And this is why, whereas we only created our own little store to demonstrate one example of a license, we're really excited about what Ethereum could do for like a future DSP. So for example, one, with the REC store, tipping. We added a tipping feature and he made just as much money on tips the first day of sales than he did off his album portion cut, which to us was so interesting. No way, that's Uh, awesome, that's crazy. Yeah, it was like, it's like, wow, such a revolutionary thing. We added a tip button. like It was like an aha moment. <laughs> such a simple thing, yet it clearly had an impact. You know, People were probably excited that RAC was working with Ethereum and they wanted to support that. It was awesome. It was commendable. But he received 100% of that. It was, it was really cool to like go on Ether scan and be like, oh my gosh, like half of this is from tips alone. So that's like one just clear, simple, straightforward example. But, was, was it like relatively dispersed? I mean, it wasn't just one person gave most. No, of the no, it was it was like a, like a proportionate amount of people that bought the actual uh, release itself. That's awesome. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, no, it, right? It was like such a like an aha. Like I was like really really surprised. Did, yeah, did, so he has a pretty fat, passionate fan base as well. Do you think? Yeah, I mean, do you think a lot of them were just the fan base that you know? 
if there was an easy way to give my favorite artist more money, I would totally do that. But I, I, I'm not like super passionate about, I don't know, buying the $50 t-shirt at a, at a show because I feel like they're only going to get $3 of it. Yeah. So, okay. So before you get into like ticketing and merchandise, let me just like begin to say how yeah, sorry. by using, using Ethereum, this can kind of bring control back to, uh, bring back control to artists. One thing we're really excited about is adding the distribution of like a token specific to a release when someone purchases something. So like if I buy a release or if I bought the RAC album, I was given an ego token, which was self-titled after the album. And if I have an ego token, you know, I have an ego token, but in five years, RAC can say, hey, anyone who bought uh, my album, you know, gets a free live stream of me doing a DJ set in my home studio or gets a free ticket to my next tour um, or even something bigger than that. And you can start to incentivize or, or gamify rather people to buy records again is in order to be more connected to you and like meet a certain threshold of a fan type uh, of you. So like if like I can have uh, I can have badges, we call them badges, not tokens just to delineate uh, the utility here. Because uh, they really kind of are like collectibles, um, like badges, but they're it's an ERC twenty. Um, so like, if I have three releases from RAC, then maybe I qualify for something that you know someone wouldn't if they only had one. Or even labels can do this. We can you know we plan to uh, set up a portal for labels where they can go in and register themselves and manage different works given within them, and they can tokenize their experiences where they kind of gamify people or incentivize people to participate for exclusive opportunities by actually monetarily participating and demonstrating that too. But you don't need to do this with just actual like uh, value transactions. You can do this with just consumption transactions. Like I may just be on your site listening to music for free because you offer it for free. But if I've listened to over a hundred hours of it, I may, you know, have an exclusive ask me, ask me anything with you. Yeah, that'd be a great way to build there's, support. Yeah, as a, as a, it's like you're incentivizing support. Um, but there's also for maybe like less established artists that don't necessarily have an engaged fan base. There's an idea where, and this goes back to like the you know selling future markets um, on artist releases. But like one thing Simon's really thinking about and talked about this week. Uh, he posted um, on Medium about it. He's um, an Ujo team member. For those of you out there that don't know Simon, but he's He's talking about like how can you you know determine the price or the rate that something should be sold at any given time when it can be duplicated very easily at no cost, a digital good rather. So like music's typically just sold for a dollar and that's that. But what if you could have like a market around a given work? And it gets you can get very complicated with it, but you don't need to. What if you just had like a page where as like an aspiring musician who's creating music that you think is worthy uh, to be heard by you know at least a portion of the world, you can go and upload it and put it on a page and sell it for a cent or or take 1% of, of the future revenue of it and list that on like a little exchange, like a service. And this could be like, you know, an example of another application that serves this need or that like, you know, accesses our catalog. It could be an idea. But so the, it's pretty short and skinny. I'm a consumer and there's an incentive for me to go look through all of this music that has zero plays or close to zero plays and invest maybe like a cent in it or five cents or up to a dollar or something given. So basically you're incentivizing a crowd to go curate the music at the bottom. And now we're kind of like enabling this like cream rising to the top, you know, music that we just have completely lost with payola and with Spotify 
Oh, Payola, that's that's another music-specific reference. Pay but with Spotify playlists, yeah, pay-to-play, right? Which is um, how most of the industry works now. It's just you, like, record, hierarchical, top-down, everything right. is paid for. <laughs> right, that's right. That's the music so, industry in, in, a, in a nutshell, as I, as I see it. <laughs> anyway. Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly, yeah, and you're not even in it. See, like, that's just the pretty ubiquitous understanding of it. That's another example because in a way you are giving away a portion of your IP. You are kind of, you know, if you do create something that's a value of cultural value, you're given an opportunity to make more revenue off of it if you didn't have any uh, exposure otherwise. Yeah, so, that, that definitely resonates with me because as, uh, you know, I was into like obscure indie bands, I don't know, when I was younger, like 20 years ago. And, you know, like some bands, like I probably sold... I don't know, literally hundreds of albums for them, maybe maybe more. And in some case, like maybe was an, a, a difference in their career. But like, I didn't get anything out of it. And that would have been great if technology enabled it. Because it was something that bothered me even then. It was like, I felt like I, you know, should have gotten some sort of like cut of it. <laughs> so it, it, it could be totally associated with that too, where it doesn't even need to be around the actual song itself or release but you can do it for the artist like if you find an artist and they only have 200 followers or 4,000 followers you're like you know what and in this this I, like similarly to your story there are so many artists on on soundcloud that this occurred to me not to mention the artists that i um helped manage or co-manage it's like if i had just one percent of their future earnings that would have been so cool it, but it doesn't even need to be like a true financial dividend it could be a social thing it doesn't need to be, it could be a clout thing. It could be like a, yeah, here I am. I have authenticated proof that I have been listening and following this band for this long, which is something we're really excited about too, because with a self-sovereign identity component to all this, it doesn't matter where, what application you're listening to or interacting with music with or artists with, because that data can be portable and accessible by all those applications. Okay. All right. If we get this right, we're looking at a much, much better future than than the unfortunate, uh, you know, past twenty years that we've all had to deal with. Like I've used five, ten different music, uh, like music uh, consumption options over the past twenty years. Whether it was starting with Napster to Kazaa to LimeWire, yeah, I, I, um, then iTunes, then MySpace was a big one, GrooveShark, SoundCloud, and this is the same story for a lot of people where. They have all of this history that's lost when all of these different companies go down. We're living in a, in, a, in a future where all of this data can be permanent, but not in a troublesome way because it actually belongs to the individuals who created themselves. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned MySpace because I think that's been lost to history. Is like it started as a place for musicians to like connect with their fans and put their music up, and it was successful because of that. And then as it became a social network, that's actually like where it lost the plot. So maybe I, I was speaking from a consumer perspective. It's even more trivial for an artist. Like if you amass a following on a MySpace or a SoundCloud, how do you convert that to Spotify? Like I, you know, I had the biggest trouble taking all of the songs and playlists that I created on Spotify or on SoundCloud and migrating them to Spotify. And a lot of it is not even available on Spotify. That's a lot of like manual work that no one wants to do. And, and a lot of people just don't do. Obviously, if you have this music on hard drive, that's, that's, you know, mitigates these entire problems. But th those aren't people that are creating problems in the music industry. If you have music on hard drives, you're probably you know, a big enough fan that's buying them. But if you're obsessed with the products and the apps that deliver them, you know, it's it's unfortunate that they don't have a long life lifetime. Are there any other like particularly unique revenue or fan interactions that you see 
Ujo and Ethereum making possible? Yeah, this is why that programmatic marketplace is so exciting because we don't know what's out there in the future. We don't know what new revenue opportunities are going to, what people are going to dream up. So the, the short answer is yes, um, but I, I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, we hope to see thousands and potentially millions of new interactions that just are enabled seamlessly because there, there's not a lot of obstacles in the way. Well, fantastic. Is there anything you feel like we need to cover or any questions I should ask you? Not at all. No, I, I, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, I hope this was helpful. I, we were kind of all over the place and it's kind of a lesson in both the music industry and what Ujo's been up to. Where should people find you personally and uh, and Ujo and, and, and keep in touch with? We're ujomusic.com. Uh, my name is Jack Spallone. Uh, that is my Twitter handle. That is my name on most all everything. Yeah, so check out ujomusic.com. We're, we're going to be releasing a lot more external information about what we're up to and what we're doing. A lot of it I talked about here. We're going to be giving a lot more of that in the first half of next year, and I'm really excited about it. We're, we're starting to see the industry really take a turn, and with that, uh, you know, we're going to go with it. And uh, we're really excited to, to usher in new opportunities for artists and fans. Fantastic. Well, thanks for coming on the program, Jack. Cool. Yeah, thanks so much, Evan. It was nice to, uh, nice to chat.